92NY Online Media is made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. This program, The World of E.B. White, An Afternoon with Roger Angel, was recorded on March 6, 2010, in front of a live audience at the 92nd Street Y, New York. Thank you. Nice to be here. This is the neighborhood culture shop for me. I live on 90th Street, so I walk over here. It's nice to be back. Actually, I've already told Bernard that uh, I was here, I can remember being here back around 1931. This place is quite new, and I had an aunt who was a highly cultured aunt and brought me here for some deadly event. I don't know what it was. It was something archaeological or maybe about Navajo songs. And we came out here for intermission, and she was talking to some friends, and I began to think about my house, which is at 93rd Street, just east of Park, and my Boston Terrier that was there, and some baseball magazines and stuff like that. So I slipped out the door during the intermission. And I was in big trouble that night. I disappeared, and my aunt didn't know where I was. She thought I'd been kidnapped. And I got long talkings, too. But if any of you want to slip out, it's okay. I won't tell anybody. <laughs> but also, I have to I remember that, that my... Mother and my father heard about this, and they, they really chewed me up. But then they said later, said, you just walked away? <laughs> uh, I'm going to be talking with great pleasure about uh, Andy White, my stepfather. Uh, the picture there is, I'd say he's in his 40s or so, maybe, uh, close to 50, around the time he was writing uh, Stuart Little and Charlotte's Web. He's up in Maine. Um, he came into my life when I was about eight years old. My parents were divorced, and my mother married Andy White. And uh, we were close for 60 years, whatever it was, and had a great time together. And I really enjoyed him. Uh, everybody else did. A, a delightful and charming and complicated and easygoing man uh, with some foibles, um, some worries. Uh, including, I'll get this out of the way, he was a famous hypochondriac. Now, kids, uh, do you kids know what the word hypochondriac is? Because it's a great word, you should know it. Hypochondriac means somebody who thinks that they're sick all the time. Hypochondriac. And Andy White was a world-class hypochondriac. World-class. Whatever people had, he thought he had it. Heart <laughs> cancer, heart disease, something's wrong with his back. He, was in, he moved very gracefully. He was an easygoing fellow, but every, every minute or two, he would go like this all his life because he thought maybe something had gone wrong with his back or he wanted to be sure everything was still working. He would make a little gesture like that. Um, I remember once we, had, we have a summer place up near his house in Northbrook in Maine, and he was over having dinner with us, and he had a drink, and he had bit into a canopy, and he went, oh, like this, and we said... And he said, got anything for cheese in the eye? He said, (laughs) another deadly affliction. Uh, Let's have the next picture, please. This is a great picture of the Whites placed in North Brooklyn, Maine, uh, that they bought. Uh, They were city people. They lived here in New York, and they both worked at the New Yorker magazine, but they loved Maine. They've been visiting up there for a few years. And... uh, they bought this around 1936 or 1935. Um, I think this place, which has got great fields going down around it and some woods, and you'll see another picture later. 
There's a cove down there in Blue Hill Bay. Uh, wonderful barn. You can see the edge of the barn and the cupola of the barn just beyond. If you go through that house, the next thing, it, it narrows down. The kitchen is a little bit now standard New England construction of collaborative houses built around 1800, 1820. And there's a little smaller in the back where the kitchen is. And then it, you go back down, still attached. You go down some stairs into the woodshed which has dirt on the floor and smells beautifully of wood as you walk through there. And then it's still connected, you walk into the barn. So in winter, you could go to the woodshed to get wood, uh, and the wood, the wood would be put into the, into the stove in the kitchen, and the white stove was still a wood stove, so they'd just go down, pick up some chunks of wood and put it in the stove, or go back into the barn. If you had animals back there, you could look after them and not go outdoors at all. On the right there is a garage, uh, and the, Andy had a shop there where he did carpentry. And those trees are beautiful Balmagilia trees I've never seen anywhere else. They're gone now. Um, let's see the next picture, please. There's the house up close. Um, nice place. Um, down at the right, those two windows are my mother's study where she did her office work for the New Yorker. On the left, the two windows are Andy White's office where he did his writing. Upstairs on the right is their bedroom, those two windows, and there's another window around the corner. Uh, the middle one is the hall, and this is sort of a guest room or overflow room if one of them was sick. Uh, this is the front door which nobody ever used. Almost only strangers ever used the front door because when you arrived, you walked in through the kitchen door in the back where the action was. And this is where they lived. Uh, from the th they moved up there full time around 1938 or 39. And Andy stopped writing for the New Yorker and began writing for Harper's Magazine. They had a monthly column called One Man's Meat. And uh, he wrote, it was basically about everyday things in the world or in Maine. And a lot of his writing is about Maine and about animals and farm stuff that he did. Uh, he was not a big-time farmer. He was a small-time farmer. But over the years, he kept sheep. He kept pigs. During the war, during World War II, he had a cow. And he raised the ante and raised more chickens and more sheep and everything because everybody was supposed to pitch in and sold, selling pigs to the market and uh, sheep wool and huge amount of eggs. Uh, and then later on, the, the husbandry, there was less of it. Uh, and all this time he was writing. Um, the family that lived there was my stepfather, Andy White. He was called, Andy, I should say, let's, let's talk about him a little bit. Uh, Andy White, his name was Elwin Brooks White, but everybody called him Andy. Never called Elwin or anything like it. Uh, he was called Andy White because he went to Cornell, and the founding president of Cornell was named White. And I'm told that everybody who goes there named White is called Andy, so there must be a whole lot of Andy Whites in the world. I don't know, but this is the one I knew. Uh, he grew up in Mount Vernon, New York, and he was the youngest child of a big family. He had five brothers and sisters. Let's see if I can remember them. Marion, Clara, Albert, Stanley, and Lillian. And most of them were much older than he was. The oldest was about 19 or 20 years old when he was born in 1899. And the next nearest, his sister Lillian, was five years older. And I've always thought this is one of the reasons he wrote, was able to write uh, Stuart Little, because he was able to think of himself as being a very small or young or tiny creature in, in, a, in a family. 
I, I think people have asked me, was he mouse-like? Or people have told me, he told me that he was mouse-like, but he wasn't mouse-like. And I think that, that's what went into that. Um, he went to Cornell. He was the editor of the Cornell Sun. I liked it very much. He was good at things. Uh, after the war, he took little jobs. And after after uh, college, he missed World War I. Uh, he did some advertising stuff, and then he took a trip west with a friend. He drove in a Model T Ford, drove all the way across the country. There were no superhighways of any kind to Seattle and worked on a newspaper there. Got a job on a steamship going up into Alaska and back and wrote about that later on. And eventually came back to New York and began writing in 1925, began writing for the New Yorker magazine as a young poet and talk of the town writer and maintained that connection all through his life. He met my mother there, who was an editor, and they got married about 1929, 28 or 29, when I was about eight years old. He was a great addition to my life. Um, it was, uh, he never tried to be a father to me. It was, I mean, it was the wrong age, and I had a father that I liked a lot, so that was no problem. But uh, Andy and I got to be very close, and he, was, he will he get along well with kids, as we'll see. Let's have another picture. Now, this is Andy in the barn. That's a famous, that's he's late in life, but uh, he is swinging on a, that, that's, the, the barn is in back, and it's a big, huge, old-fashioned barn. This is the, the doors facing north, which swing open, and this is the place where the hay, the hay wagons would come in, and they would unload the hay up on the upper levels there. And since you're going downhill, down, going down that way, are two levels. And the sheep would keep them in one level and at the very bottom level, the pigs. So it was a very natural sort of place to walk into. And uh, Here's a picture of him swinging out. Uh, this was a terrific thing to do. Is that we all like doing that. You get, get the swing down and the seat is a, is a piece of firewood, uh, birch firewood, the round part on top. And the rope goes right through it, and you'd get on that, and you swing out, and you'd swing into the darkness, and where the inside, where all the smells of the barn were all around you, and then swing out into the sunlight, and then back again. Um, wonderful fun, and you'd do it over and over again. And at any point, you'd be walking by there and take a couple of swings because it felt so good. And one of the things that you were aware of there, of course, there was a lot of lot of life going on outside in the fields and vegetable gardens and and bird life, and up above this big door, there was a, a window about like this, and the bottom of it was kept open this high. The window was up all the time. And in and out through that window, barn swallows would come flying in at top speed. And barn swallows, if you have never seen them, are beautiful flyers, are little birds with, with curved wings like this and a, and a tail, forked tail like this, and a little white on the front. And they sail around like this and beautifully. And these barn swells go and go into the dark of the barn. And you think, how can they do that? And inside, they had nests all around. They had nests built on little corners, dark corners of the barn. And those swallows' nests are made of, are made of clay. And uh, some twigs, they sort of gray, they clay. They, put, they have to have water around while they're making their nests because they pick up bits of water and work it into the clay. 
And the last thing they do, when he mentions this, I think in Charlottesville, but he mentions it elsewhere. The last thing a swallow will do when it's built its nest is it will, it, will, it will fly around somewhere and it will see a white feather that a bird has lost. And it will pick that up and, put it, and come up and put it at the rim of the nest. So when you look at a barn swallow and you know, a barn swallow's nest, what you see is a bit of white around the edge of the nest. So a barn swallow coming in can see where in the dark will have a little beacon to go to and, and, and go right to the nest. Um, the great thing, I mean, this is the kind of thing that Andy would notice right away. He would be aware of it and he would point this out because he was, he was a world-class noticer. Let's have another picture, please. This is, this is Fern swinging on the, uh, the swing in, uh, in her barn in, the, uh, in uh, Charles Webb. So what's, what Andy knew, he put into, into all his books. And what, all the wonderful farm stuff in uh, Charlotte's Webb is stuff that he knew personally, knew every detail about farms because he was an active farmer. And uh, he put, of course, we put the swing in there. And that's, of course, reminds us what a wonderful artist Garth Williams was, who did the drawings for that and for Stuart Little as well. Uh, Stuart, Stuart Little is a, is a children's, is a uh, city book, if you recall. It's about city doings. And a lot of the things that Stuart does in the city are things that are still around about buses and about garbage trucks and uh, skating on that little pond down at 72nd Street that's still there, uh, and sailing a boat down there. There's a sailboat race in that same pond. That exact same pond is there. These are all city things that Andy knew about. Uh, we might as well get this out of the way. The, he took about 20 years, I think, to write Stuart Little. He never, he never thought of himself that he would be a children's book writer, grow up to be a children's book writer. It never crossed his mind. Uh, but somebody said you should use those stories because because of having that much older sisters and brothers, he had a lot of nephews and nieces to read aloud to as he was growing up, as he was a young man, a young writer. And he began to make up stories about a mouse that were living in New York. And that's what Stuart Little came from. And all these stories over the years, he finally said, I've got to put them into a book. And he put them into Stuart Little with a lot of doubt and uh, thought, didn't think it was going to much, much would come of it. But uh, the great thing, I'll tell you what I like most about Stuart Little. It's, it's the two things at the beginning that are so great for all of us that read it. But if you pick it up again now and read it, right away you go, wow, because... Stuart Little is a mouse, and he's born, he has human parents. And you, that's all that's explained. His parents are real are people, but he's a mouse. That's all he's explained. And everybody thinks, well, that's the great miracle of Stuart Little. But there's another thing that's so great about Stuart Little, if you think about it, which is that he's not a little mouse, he's not a kid. He's a grown-up. He's not only, not only has grown-up human beings for parents, but he's a little man. And he has a hat and a coat and, and uh, shoes and a cane. And he thinks like a man. And he gets, eventually gets a car. So he's grown up. He's, not, he's never as a child. He's never a baby steward, uh, which is a great, another great leap of the imagination. Just go on from there. Um, let's have another picture, please. This is a wonderful picture of the white space. This is, this is uh, the lane that goes down from right beside the barn down toward the shore. 
And this is obviously on a spring day. You can tell it's from the color of the, of the grass that it's fairly early spring. And from the fact that those geese, which you can see walking down the lane, have goslings. Those young little yellow things are, are newborn goslings. They're about three weeks old, I think. And they're all waddling down into the pasture. The pasture goes along quite a distance on both sides. As you can see, it's a rough pasture. It's got trees in it and rocks in it. And there's some woods beyond, that's Allen Cove, that body of water, is called Allen Cove, and it's part of a larger body of water, Blue Hill Bay. And in the distance, you can just see, vague on a, this somewhat cloudy day, you can see mountains from, that's Mount Desert Island, where Bar Harbor is. Uh, so this is a beautiful place, and Andy called it a saltwater farm, and it's, uh, it's a farm place, but it's also a shore place. And if you were up around the house walking around, you look down into that meadow and walking back and forth and doing things, uh, whatever you were doing, you would look down there and sometimes see a fox, sometimes see a porcupine. Um, sometimes there were heifers down there that he would, that he would rent out the pasture and somebody would keep his young, young cows there. Uh, a lot of stuff going on. And, uh, excuse me. Oh, I'm supposed to read. Excuse me. <laughs> this is a little thing that he wrote about uh, to give you an idea of how how the uh, farming turned into writing. This is wrote, written in April 1940 from a piece in One Man's Week called A Shepherd's Life. This is a day of high winds and extravagant promises. A day of bright skies and the sun on the white-painted south sides of the buildings, of lambs on the warm slope of the barnyard, their forelegs folded neatly, and their, on their miniature faces they looked of grave miniature content. Beneath the winter cover of spruce boughs, they would put in the winter, they would put spruce boughs all around the house in order to keep, to keep drafts out of the house, to pile them up, uh, green, green branches. Beneath the winter cover of spruce boughs, the tulip thrusts its spear. A white hen is chaperoning 13 little black chicks all over the place, showing them the world's fair with its lagoons and small worms. The wind is northwest and the bay is on the march. Even on the surface of the watering fountain in the hen yard, quite a sea is running. Now this, this to me, this is perfect Andy White. He has noticed that the watering fountain of the, of the hens is about this big, and this, 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 the thing on water is full of water, but he notices because it's a windy day that, that, that there's a little movement of water on the top of it. So the exact detail is what he specializes in and builds from. Quite a sea is running. My goose will lay her seventh egg today in the nest she made for herself alongside the feed rack and the sheep shed. So on cold nights, the lambs will lie in the eggs to keep them from freezing until such time as the goose decides to sit. It's an arrangement they've worked out among themselves. The lambs enjoying the comfort of the straw nest in return for a certain amount of body heat delivered to the eggs, not enough to start the germ to start them turning into goslings, but enough to keep the frost out. Things work out if you leave them alone. At first, when I found lambs sitting on goose eggs, I decided that my farm venture got out of hand and that I'd better quit before any more abortive combinations developed. 
At least I thought she'll have to break up that nest and shift the goose. But I'm calmer than I used to be and, clear, and kept clear of the situation. As I say, things work out. Oh, let's have another picture now. Uh, that's Andy sitting at a little desk he built for himself in the boathouse, which is down at our, at, our, at our beach and dock down there. The boathouse was a small building, uh, shingled, uh, that was there when they arrived, and it was full of old uh, nautical stuff, lobster pot or two, a couple of anchors. You could, put a, you could put a rowboat in there if you wanted to. When we went swimming, there was a gravelly beach on this side over here. And uh, you could go swimming. We kept our swimming stuff down there, our, ba- our swimming suits and, and towels. So there was all that old bathing suit smell, that very strong smell that everybody remembers from their summers. But anyone down there would like to go down there to the right. He had that big window made, bigger window. And it was arranged there was a pulley going up in a line. So he could just pull it up like a sail, pull up like this and fasten it. And the window would come up. And that desk actually was hinged on the far side. It had legs on this side. and the far side, there was a hinge. So... When he was finished, the window would be closed, and he would lift the desk up, and there was a little, little hinge that swung over to hold the desk, and the legs would fold back so it would be out of the way. Something he worked out. That little barrel, that's a nail barrel down there he's using for a uh, wastebasket. Um, and he liked things that worked, and he liked things that were neat and, and, and put together. Um, I'm just trying to think when to read the next thing. All right. Uh, There's another piece of writing I like very much, which is a very North Brooklyn. This this house is in North Brooklyn, Maine. Uh, Very much the feel of the place. Um... This is in the late, also in the 40s, 42. Listen to the radio. He is talking about his day, so he doesn't say I. He's left the I out. You'll notice that the word I isn't in there. Uh, Listen to the radio at 8.55, and then went to the barn to put things to bed. In the hen pen, searched the nest for broodies. Those are hens that are getting ready to sit on the nest and, and hatch them and found one and removed her, she lying quietly in my arms in the twilight with that wonderful concentrated quietude the fever of incubation induces. The smoke pall of the, the, smoke pall of the morning had been some, some forest fires nearby. The smoke pall of the morning had cleared away and the night was sweet and clear with a heavy integument of smell, a heavy smell of lilac. In the brooder house, the young cockerels, the young male uh, roosters, the young cockerels were assembling in a corner, so I took a bamboo pole and rattled it, and they quickly found the roost. Then I closed the pot pole. I filled a bucket with oats and continued on to the range where the pullets are, the young female eggs, the air here smelling of blossoms with a trace of skunk. And I filled the inside feeders with oats against the morning and closed the doors of the shelters and watched the pullets settling down rank after rank with the tiny burbling signs of, sighs of contentment while the mosquitoes tore at me and the warmth and smell rose to greet me from the relaxed bodies of the birds. And I returned to the house and got the terrier and put him into the garage and then let the big red dachshund out. They had three dogs at this point. 
a terrier's name is Raffles, the big red dachshund's name is Fred, and the, the, the little black dachshund coming up is named Minnie. I returned to the house and got the terrier and put him in the garage where he slept, and returned to the house and got the, the big red dachshund out and then in again, and then the little black dachshund out and in again, and I set up the fire screen in the living room and closed the door of the woodshed and turned out the lights one by one through all the rooms and ascended and brushed my teeth and pulled the window curtains and looked in at the sleeping boy, his son, my brother Joe, to see if he was covered and undressed and undressed and got into bed and tried my neck again. There he is, that's the neck. And changed position from the right side to the left side and heaved a great sigh. And that is the news to this moment. Uh, now, another picture, please. One of my favorite pictures. There is Andy White next to the garage, a little bit older now. And that's my son, John Henry, at the age of two. And what's going on is that Andy is fixing the mash for his bantam hens. Those are little hens that run around loose on the farm. They're not in pens. They just, wherever you, you, a lot of farms have those little guys running around. And uh, he is talking to John Henry a mile a minute and telling him, talking about Bantam hens or talking about what he's put into that. He's mixed the whole thing himself and there's some worms in there that he has probably dug with that pitchfork, if you notice there. And John Henry is fascinated. And uh, they are already closely attached, I would say. Uh, the thing about Andy was that he was... He was a natural with kids and with animals, with dogs. He was non-competitive. He never competed with kids. He didn't try to be a father or, or a pal. He just he was at ease with, uh, with kids. And uh, as a result, you learned a lot from him. I myself learned a great deal from him, starting from the age of about six. I learned how to, he taught me how to row, taught me how to sail, uh, taught me how to write, I think, a little bit, I hope, in the end. But I never remember him raising his voice or, or hurrying or being impatient. Um, there was a sense of time built into him. He's a very graceful man. Just walking along, you watched him because uh, he, he didn't move particularly slowly, but he didn't hurry either. There was, there was a sense of extra time about everything he did. Like great athletes have that extra beat of time when they move around. And he had this just in his everyday, uh, everyday uh, way of going about things. Uh, and I think it gets into his writing, too. He was not in a hurry to get, get something done. He took a long time writing Charlotte's Web, for instance. Uh, Stuart Little came out and was very successful. There was a lot of pressure on him to write another book. And he knew he wanted to perhaps do something about the farm. But he took about four, four or five years to do this. And after three years, I think he had most of it done. He had 17 chapters written, a whole book. And then he said... He put it aside to let the heat go out of it. He didn't quite trust, didn't, didn't quite feel, feel right to him. This is Charlotte's Web he's written. Most of the great stuff is in there already. He took two years, he said, to let the heat go out, and then he read it again. And then he wrote, put a lot more about Fern in. And meantime, along the, the way, he rewrote the first page eight times. Uh, to get it right, and then eventually went back to one of the, the one of his very early versions was "Where is Papa going with that axe?" which is the first line of, Char of uh, Charlotte's Web. 
But he wasn't in a hurry to meet a publisher deadline. He wasn't in a hurry to, to make money or to become famous or any of those things. And uh, this, this, I think, goes into what his writing is like. Um, okay, another picture, please. Uh, he drew, he made this drawing. That's a drawing of Fred. And we're going to talk about Fred a little bit because one of his dogs, we had, he had a lot of dogs. He had, uh, I can, always had one or two dogs, sometimes three. Fred, this was a big red dachshund, not, not a little tiny dachshund the way now. He was about like that. And he was called red. He was a dark, light, uh, uh, brown, really, not red. But uh, he's a major character with Andy and supervised everything and drove Andy crazy at the same time. But Andy was interested. He was interested in little things. And what, what full-size dachshunds have a problem going downstairs, if you think about it, because they, they have there so long. And their back legs are in one step and the front leg are doing something else. And Fred, when you watched him, would always go like this. And then his hind legs would go like this. He'd go like this. Like this. He had to swing his hind legs back down to the steps so he wouldn't fall downstairs. And Andy drew this. It's a really nice drawing. I think it's pretty good. The head's a little bit too small, but that's good. And he once drew that. And then this, he used this for a Christmas card they sent out one year. He added the verse about going downstairs. I like that very much. Um, so here's something he wrote about Fred. He wrote about Fred all the time. They were a perfect subject. Uh, let me see where I am. Uh, excuse me. One second. Here we are. Notice this morning how gray Fred is becoming. This is our elderly dachshund. His trunk and legs are still red, but his muzzle, after dozens of major operations for the removal of porcupine quills, is now a sort of a strawberry roan with many white hairs, the result of worry. Next to myself, he is the greatest worrier and schemer on the premises and always has too many things on his mind. He not only handles all his own matters, but has to follow up system about what he checks on all mine to see that everything is taken care of. His interest in every phase of farming remains undiminished, as does mine, but his passion for details is kind of an obsession and seems to be unhealthy. He wants to be present in a managerial capacity at every event, no matter how trifling or routine. It makes no difference whether I'm dipping a sheep, what you do for the get rid of worms on a sheep, where I'm dipping a sheep or simply taking a bath myself. In damp weather, his arthritis makes steer climbing a torturous and painful accomplishment, yet he groans his way down cellar with me to pack eggs and to investigate for the thousandth time the changeless crypt where the egg crates live. Here he awaits the fall of an egg to the floor and the sensual delight of licking it up, which he does with his lips drawn slightly back, although in distaste of the strange consistency of the white. His hopes run always to accidents and misfortunes, the broken egg, the spilt milk, the wounded goose, the fallen lamb, the fallen cake. He also has an insane passion for a kick football and a Roman candle. It's a firework. Either of which he can throw him into a running fit from which he emerges exhausted and frothing at the mouth. His activities and his character constitute an almost uninterrupted annoyance to me, yet he's such an engaging old fool that I'm quite attached to him in a half-regretful way. Life without him would be heaven, but I'm afraid it's not what I want. 
This morning, early after I'd milked and separated, this morning he had a cow, so it must have been during the war, I managed to lose my grip on a bowl of new cream as I was removing it from under the spout and lost the whole mess on the floor where it spread like lava to the corners of the room. For a moment, my grief at this enormous mishap suffused my whole body, but the familiar assistance of Fred, who had supervised the separation and taken charge of the emergency, came to my relief. He cleaned up a pint and a half of, a pint and a half of cream so that you would not have known anything had happened. As a charboy and scavenger, he's the best dog I've ever associated with. Nothing ever faintly edible ever has to be cleaned up from the floor. He handles it. I allow him to eat any substance he chooses in order to keep him in fighting trim, and I must say he's never failed me. And this reminds me that I, something he did some, sometimes with Fred. If Andy had, had a, a bottle of, of beer, some beer with his supper or at lunchtime, he sometimes put the almost, if the, if the beer bottle had a little neck on it, he'd put the almost empty bottle down on the, on the carpet in the living room, and Fred would come on and sniff, sniff the beer inside and, and work at it and push at it, and eventually he'd push the neck down, and with his tongue, so he licked the beer out, and then he ate the label. <laughs> It was great. I saw do this many times. Uh, another picture, please. Uh, that's the picture of Andy. Was I just want to show you? Those, some of the sheep are big. This is this is posed for a photographer. I think they're both kind of embarrassed by it. The sheep is not used to eating out of a dish, and Andy thinks it's not the right thing to be doing. But um, I want to go back. How are we doing on time? Okay. I want to go back and. Uh, if I can go back to the uh, third picture, please. Is that possible? Um, I told you the top right two windows are the White's bedroom. And on the right, you can see the branches from the adjoining tree, which is just, you can just see the edge of it right there, a Balmagillia tree. And which comes into this thing that he that he is writing now. I love this this piece of writing. Um, it tells so much about him and how he how he writes. Um, I think this is the fourth spring. The raccoon has occupied the big tree in front of the house, but I've lost count. So smoothly do the years run together. She is like a member of our family. She has her kittens. Young raccoons are called kittens. You kids all know what a raccoon looks like. Striped tail, long pointy nose, and sort of a mask, that black mask, very pointy ears, little paws like hands. Very smart, interesting animals. Um, she has her kittens in a hole in the tree about 35 feet above the ground, which places her bedchamber a few, a few feet from my bedchamber, but at a slightly greater elevation. It strikes me as odd and quite satisfactory that I should go to sleep every night so close to a litter of raccoons. The mother's comings and goings are as much part of my life at this season of the year as my morning shave and my evening drink. Being a coon, she is, of course, a creature of the night. I am essentially the creature of the day, so we divide things up very nicely. I've become attuned to her habits, her departure as the light fades at quarter past eight, her return to the hungry kittens about 3 a.m., just before daylight, after the night's adventures. 
that I have taken to waking at three to watch her homecoming to admire her faint silhouette against the night sky as she carefully sniffs the bark all around the hole to learn if anything has been along during her absence and if any child of hers has disobeyed her instructions about not venturing out of the hole. The kittens are quite big now. The sun is hot and the hole is none too roomy anyway. It's nothing but a flicker hole that has become enlarged. A flicker is a kind of a woodpecker. She has emerged to lie in full view in the horizontal limb just under her doorway. Three of her four legs are draped lifelessly over the limb, the fourth being held in reserve. Her coat is rough after a night of hunting. I guess I've watched my coon descend the tree a hundred times. Even so, I never miss a performance if I can help it. it. Has a ritualistic quality. I know every motion. As a ballet enthusiast knows every motion of his favorite dance. The secret of its enchantment is the way she em it employs the failing light so that when the descent begins, the performer is clearly visible and is a part of the day. And when 10 or 15 minutes later, the descent is complete, and the coon removes the last paw from the tree and takes the first step away, ground-born. She is almost indecipherable and is a part of the shadows and the night. The going down of the sun and the going down of the coon are interrelated phenomena. A man is lucky indeed who lives near sunset and coonset, where lives where sunset and coonset are visible from the same window. A coon comes down a tree headfirst most of the way. When she gets to within about six feet of the ground, she reverses herself, allowing her hind end to sling, swing slowly downward. She then finishes the descent tail first. When at last she comes to earth, it is a hind foot that touches down. It touches down as cautiously as though it were the first contact ever made by a mammal with the flat world. The coon does, doesn't just let go of the tree and drop to the ground as a monkey or a boy might. She steps off onto my lawn as though in slow motion, first one high hind paw, then the other hind paw, then a second's delay when she stands erect, her two front paws still in place, although the tree were her partner in the dance. Finally, she goes down on all fours and strides slowly off, her slender front paws reaching ahead of her to the limit, like the hands of an experienced swimmer. I have often wondered why the coon reverses herself, starting head first, ending tail first. I believe it's because although it comes naturally to her to descend head first, she doesn't want to arrive on the ground in that posture, lest an enemy appear suddenly and catch her at a disadvantage. As it is, she can dodge back up without unwinding herself if a dog or a man should appear. Uh, once again, that's, what he has done is to watch something, to watch something very, very, very carefully. And this is such a significant and, and uh, beautiful part of his writing, and I think that, that uh, is a lesson for writers in many ways. If you, can get the, if you can get the little things right, the big things, what, are, what you're trying to say, the big, the big feelings, whatever you're trying to think is at the back of your mind will, will come along naturally. Um, let's go to the next photograph. Next, next one, please. There we are. There's Andy in his study uh, at his typewriter. That's his desk right there. Uh, that's a later dog of his named Susie, a West Highland White, who is waiting to go out, I think. And this is where he did a lot of his writing. Um, I have some things I want to read from Charlotte's Web. 
uh, which you all know by heart, I hope, or know a lot about. But uh, these are these are a lot of fun, a lot of fun for me anyway. Uh, one of the things that Andy enjoyed because we all enjoyed all enjoy them, and kids enjoy them a lot, is lists lists of things. Um, this is about Wilbur, who was the hero, the pig, young pig. You remember, is the young pig who thinks he's going to be turned into ham and bacon early on, and all these magical and wonderful things happen, and it doesn't happen in the end. Um, rain upset Wilbur's plans. Wilbur had planned to go out this day and dig a new hole in his yard. He's just a young pig. He had other plans, too. His plans for the day went something like this. Breakfast at 6.30. Skim milk, crusts, middlings, bits of donuts, wheat cakes with drops of maple syrup sticking to them, potato skins, leftover custard pudding with raisins, and bits of shredded wheat. Breakfast would be finished at 7. From 7 to 8, Wilbur planned to have a talk with Templeton, the rat who lived under his trough. Talking with Templeton was not the most interesting occupation in the world, but it was better than nothing. From 8 to 9, Wilbur planned to take a nap outdoors in the sun. From 9 to 11, he planned to dig a hole or a trench and possibly find something good buried, buried in the dirt. From 11 to 12, he planned to stand still and watch flies on the boards, watch the bees in the clover, and watch swallows in the air. There are those swallows again. 12 o'clock, lunchtime. Middlings, that's leftovers, middles of things. Warm water, apple parings, meat gravy, carrot scrapings, meat scraps, and stale hominy, kind of breakfast cereal, and the wrapper off an old package of cheese. Lunch would be over at 1. From 1 to 2, Wilbur planned to sleep. From 2 to 3, he planned to scratch itchy places by rubbing against the fence. From 3 to 4, he planned to stand perfectly still and think of what it was like to be alive and to wait for fern. At 4 would come supper. Skim milk, provender, leftover sandwich from Lurvie's lunchbox, Lurvie the handyman. Uh, prune skins, a morsel of this, a bit of that, fried potatoes, marmalade drippings, a little more of this, a little more of that, a piece of baked apple, a scrap of upside down cake. Wilbur, you want to sleep thinking about these plans. He awoke at six and saw the rain, and it seems as though he couldn't bear it. I got everything all beautifully planned out and it had to go to rain, he said. I think what Andy White is doing there is is telling the reader what it's like to be a very young pig. Because, I mean, Wilbur doesn't have much in mind. And this is the way kids fill up the day. And a lot of us fill up the day, too, thinking about the next meal. But here's another list. One afternoon, Fern heard a most interesting conversation, witnessed a strange event. You have awfully hairy legs, Charlotte, said Wilbur, as the spider busily worked at her task. My legs are hairy for a good reason, replied Charlotte. Furthermore, each leg of mine has seven sections. The coxa, the trochanter, the femur, the patella, the tibia, the metatarsus, and the torsus. Wilbur sat bolt upright. You're kidding, he said. No, I'm not either. Say those names again. I didn't catch them the first time. Coxa, trochanter, femur, patella, tibia, metatarsus, and torsus. Goodness, said Wilbur, looking down at his chubby legs. I don't think my legs have seven sections. Well, this is great fun, but another thing that's happened is that Andy spent a whole year studying spiders before he read this book. He had a couple of giant books about spiders, 
and uh, he identified the kind of spider that he had found up in his barn corner and Sherlock uh, Cavatica. But he wanted to know all about spiders. And he, that's one of the things that would keep him waiting for his writing. He wanted to be ready to know something before he could, before he could uh, put it into his books. Uh, I don't think that other writers really work quite the same way. Um, Uh, do you want another another meal of Wilbur or not? Have you had enough enough pig food? Do you want to do it again? Let's do it again. He's a little bit older now. Uh, Lurvy, the hired man, is about to feed Wilbur. Wilbur stood at the trough, drooling with hunger. Lurvy poured. <laughs> the slops ran down around the pig's eyes and ears. Wilbur grunted. He gulped and sucked and sucked and gulped, making swishing and swooshing noises, anxious to get everything at once. It was a delicious meal. Skim milk, wheat middlings, leftover pancakes, half a donut, the rind of summer squash, two pieces of stale toast, a third of a ginger snap, a fish tail, one orange peel, several noodles from a noodle soup, the scum off a cup of coffee, an ancient jelly roll, a strip of paper from the lining of the garbage pail, and a spoonful of raspberry jello. Wow. <laughs> All right, we're almost, we're almost through the readings here. Now, they're getting ready to go to the fair. Now, the fair that they go to at the end of Charlotte's Web, where a lot of things happen, is based on the Blue Hill Fair that happened in Blue Hill, Maine, nine miles from where the Whites lived. And they used to go, we all went to the Blue Hill Fair every year in the beginning of September. It's still going on. It goes for two or three days, and they have trotting races, and they have a midway, and they have a lot of judging of animals, which is where Wilbur gets into the judging and gets surprised for being sort of left over the best, the greatest pig. But uh, in the barnyard, they're getting ready to go. Um, and Charlotte says she's going to go to the fair. Children, snap the goose. We're staying quietly, quietly at home. Only Wilbur, Wilbur is going to talk to the fair. This is the way geese talk. Charlotte interrupted. I'll go too. I've decided to go with Wilbur. He may need me. We can't tell what may happen at the fairgrounds. Somebody's got to go along who knows how to write, and I think Templeton may better come too. I might need somebody to run errands and do general work. I'm staying right here, grumbled the rat. It's not, I've not the slightest interest in fairs. That's because you've never been to one, remarked the old sheep. A fair is a rat's paradise. Everybody spills food at a fair. A rat can creep out late at night and have a feast. In the horse barn, you will find oats that the trotters and pacers have spilled. In the trampled grass of the infield, you will find old discarded lunch boxes containing the foul remnants of peanut butter sandwiches, hard-boiled eggs, cracker crumbs, bits of donuts, and particles of cheese. And the hard-packed dirt of the midway after the glaring lights are out and the people have gone home to bed, you'll find a veritable treasure of popcorn fragments, frozen custard dribblings, candied apples adopted, uh, abandoned by tired children, sugar fluff crystals, salted almonds, popsicles, partially gnawed ice cream cones, and the wooden sticks of lollipops. Everywhere is loot for a rat, in tents and booze and haylofts, why a fair has enough disgusting leftover food to satisfy a whole army of rats. Templeton's eyes were blazing. <laughs> Is this true? He said. Is this appetizing yarn of yours true? I like high living, and what you say tempts me. So he goes to the fair. <laughs> um, we're about to have some questions. Um, 
The end of Charlotte's Web, as you know, is famously sad. Charlotte dies at the fair. And uh, there's a line, there's no one is with her when she dies. And if you're reading this aloud to kids, and if you've done this over the years, you always have the Kleenex handy for this, for this moment because it's, it's unbearable. But the great thing that happens after that is that uh, they go back to the farm, and that moment when the egg sack opens and those little spiders come out, and one day they let their they let their bits of of uh, thread come out of them, which make little balloons and carry them away. This is how spiders move about after they're born. This is right out of the book about spiders, and. Uh, Wilbur is enchanted by this, but they're all going away, all his companions, and some of them stay. But what I think, what Charles Webb is really about is about movements, about the movements on form, about things going on, and it's about, it's about the movement of, of age. Of, of Wilbur goes from a tiny pig to a grown-up pig. Fern goes from a young girl to almost a teenage girl, and at the end, she doesn't pay any attention to Wilbur anymore. She's interested in a boy, Henry Fussy. She's forgotten all about her farm friends. And in the spring, there are new lambs, and there are new birds, and uh, the, the young spiders have been born. And without saying so, Andy has showed us the, the movements of the year and the movements of life, which is, I think, why the book does stay with us. And... Uh, has been such a beautiful thing in, in so many lives. Uh, I'd love to have some questions. I've talked too long. Please, some, anyway. Yeah, right there. Why did Andy stop writing for the New Yorker? Stop writing for the New Yorker? Well, because he wanted to do something. He wanted to change his pace. He was writing every week. He wrote the, uh, let me turn this off. What he wrote uh, every week was notes and comments, the first page, the editorial page of The New Yorker, which was lighter in those days. Um, and he worked hard at it. It was a hard job for him. It was always read in a light way, but I remember him writing it every Tuesday and mailing it off. But uh, when he went to Maine, he wanted to change and not be just a New Yorker writer, not just to write those short things. And he wrote, began writing for, for uh, One Man's Meet, a monthly column, which was longer. And I think writing that was the making of him as a writer, the writer that he became. It suited him better. And a lot of the stuff that I read is from One Man's Meeting. You can see there's a different pace. It's not a New York, it's not a New York based thing. It has a different pace to it. Yeah. Yeah, I used to, we used, to, used to do it for two days. We would drive up and uh, sometimes start in the afternoon because somebody had to work and we would stop at uh, Sturbridge Mass and stay there. Sometimes he pressed on and there was a, uh, a motel called Dutchland Farms uh, south of Portland. We'd stop there and go on. It's a much slower trip, but... It's now from my from my doorstep to our place up there. It's up 453 miles, door to door, and we can do it without pressing. Sometimes in under eight hours, which is uh, moving right along. But the car drives itself. It's done this so often. So. <laughs> yeah. Any kids got any questions? I can't see. Anybody? Any young? Yeah. All right. I'm sorry. Back there. Yeah. Um, you mentioned that. Is that can you hear me? Oh, uh, we'll try. Yeah. <laughs> 
Go ahead. Okay. Um, you mentioned that Andy never intended to write children's books, but clearly there must have been some kind of conscious shift as a writer. Can you ever share with me what that transition was like? That no, he never. He never talked about himself in any any removed way. He never. He never heard him say a pretentious thing about being a writer. He talked about how hard writing was, and it is. Writing is really hard. Uh, but he didn't think of himself in those terms. And he, as I said, he was he was not anxious to be famous. I mentioned that a couple of times, which is a very strong characteristic of him. He's a very private sort of guy. He was shy, uh, but he didn't have an image of himself being some kind of a writer, which is why he was free to become a great children's book writer in the middle of his life. Something that came along. He was, I'm sorry. No, no, as I was saying, he didn't, he didn't talk about himself as a writer. He really didn't. He would talk about the difficulty of writing, about getting stuff down on the page, but not about himself. He would never talk about his career or his style. Or <clears throat> it wasn't in him. Uh, he, he loved anonymity, semi-anonymity. He was very close friend. His closest friend at the New Yorker was James Thurber. And Thurber, by contrast, was obsessed with fame. He wanted to be a famous writer. And they've really stopped being friends as a result of this. Thurber went in a different direction and was always giving interviews and writing in a rather self-conscious, uh, great writer style late in his life. Uh, not, not the style of E.B. White, but... And he, he said he wrote when Jim Thurber died, Andy wrote his obituary in The New Yorker. Thurber was blind, as you know, late in life. And, and Andy wrote, I knew Jim, I knew him before blindness hit him and before fame hit him, which is an interesting thing to say. Well, I didn't commission it. I was working at Holiday Magazine. I don't think I thought of it, but I think maybe I said maybe you'd like to write something for Holiday, and I think to oblige me, maybe he he wrote a piece. And I I talked to the editor Ted Patrick, and the assignment was made. I don't think it was. Yeah, I'll write a piece for you, Roger. And then it got into the magazine. It had to be done through the editor, but. I, I, well, I was involved in just doing that, I guess, to some extent. Was one of you doing the other one more of a favor? Okay, I'm sorry. Who, was one of you doing the other more of a favor than that? Oh, I wasn't doing him any favor. I mean, he didn't, he didn't need to be in Holiday Magazine. He was doing a favor for me. But. Yes. No, I think he stopped. He stopped off and on. And also, the schedule changed a little bit because during the war, in the middle of the war, uh, things were at the New Yorker. The editor, Harold Ross, was running out of editors, and they, they didn't know how to get the magazine out. They thought they might have to stop and do it every other week. So they moved back to New York, and my mother came back and worked full-time. She'd been, she'd been working from a distance by mail. My mother came back, and, and they, they stayed there from, I think, middle of 1940. Uh, late 1944 till the end of the war and then moved back up there again. And they were also sometimes moved back and forth to the city and again and also in the middle of the winter they would go to Florida for a couple of months and they got older they go to uh, Siesta Key and Sarasota and stay there. Yeah. So then he put on Charlotte's Web back for two years and just let it stay there. Did yeah. you get to read the um, no, no, he never told anybody. I never knew he was, I never, he never heard a word from him that he was writing Stuart Little or Charlotte's Web. And I may have said, are you writing another children's book? And he might have said, oh, I'm thinking of it, or sort of. But he didn't talk about those things, and he didn't trot them out. He would show them to my mother. 
there's another picture here we haven't shown yet. Could we see that? I'm sorry, this guy's going. There's one more picture. Yeah, there's another one after that. There we are. There's a nice picture of my mother and Andy. That's he's younger again. That's many of the docks, and they're down at the dock. Uh, she was my mother was very important to him in his writing. She was an editor, and she a very she's a great editor, one of the great editors. And uh, she read his first stuff first. He read it, and then he and she read it. Everything he wrote was run by her, uh, and she encouraged him and and. Uh, uh, he worried a lot about different things and she tried to make, make it easy to be a writer, which is, uh, you can't do really. But she was very significant in this, in this whole enterprise. Uh, his, his books came along as a great surprise as a result of this. And uh, you, you sort of felt, well, I wish I'd known about this in advance. But then when you get the thing finished, it was so, it was so great. The wonderful thing to being, being close to Andy was this flood of letters that came all all through my life, I got um, my wife, and then my wife Carol as well, got letters from Andy, and everybody wrote back and forth. But this was before emails, and I have, I still have drawers and drawers full of letters from Andy's wife, and they're all great. And when I was overseas during the war, he would write me, and it was it was really great getting letters from him. But I was also reading One Man's Meat overseas in the Pacific during the war, and there was a pretty great letter from home. I was not, it was nice to read. Yes. I don't think so. I don't think so. Um, when he was young, he thought he was going to write some big heavyweight thing. He took a year off, and he was going to—I don't know what it was—but to think about being a different kind of a writer, and nothing came of it. Thank God. I mean, it was—we wanted to be the. <laughs> well, I think we wanted to be the writer. It turned out to be. I don't think he had anything left. Uh, uh, he wrote uh, The Trumpet of the Swan, we have mentioned after uh, Charlotte's Web, uh, two or three years later. And he worked hard on that, too. But it was I think he wrote that more for money because he'd become a, suddenly become a, a, a very well-known children's book writer, the big market for it. And he said, well, maybe I can do one more. And it's a little bit more of a manufactured thing. It takes place in the, the, around the zoo in Philadelphia and stuff like that, which is more out of his head than... And this stuff, but uh, a good book. Yes. Do you have any idea how he decided to have Stuart have human parents? How do you have humans have a mouse child? I don't think so. I just think he I mean I just so I think he just thought it was a good idea. I mean, there was a terrific to do about this, as you know. There was a great piece in the New Yorker a couple of years ago about this because the chief librarian at uh, the New York Public Library, Ann Carol Moore a famous, famous librarian and a famous doyen, a curator of children's books, uh, was shocked by Stuart Little because human parents had had a mouse, and she thought this was going to mess up the sex education of children all around the country. <laughs> and, but Andy, Andy felt this was really a strong feeling he had about children and about imagination. Uh, his children's books, by the way, my, my mother reviewed children's books for The New Yorker, uh, twice a year, she would do a piece about children's books, which was great for me as a kid because I got to be a young reader for her. And she would show me books, and I said, "What do you think of this?" I read I read Swallows and Nightingales when before it was ever published. Um, 
But uh, these children's books were around the house, and he would read the children's books, and he didn't really like everything that was going on about, about children's books and wrote about that now and then. And I think this helped him write one of his own. Because the magic that comes uh, into his children's books, it's from the familiar. It's not, they're not uh, fairy dust and, and fairies on wings and uh, <clears throat> other, other forms of, of children's books, things that we know about so much. And nor are they, they're not improving. They're not, you don't feel it after you've read one of his, of his uh, books that I've learned a lot about, uh, Navajo basket making or something. There are a lot of children's books that teach you something, but these books are not meant to teach. They're just, they were for his entertainment too, as well as ours, and they're really entertaining. And uh, yes. No, go ahead. He did not read, not a great, good question. He was not a great reader. He read slowly. And he always made fun of himself as being a slow reader. But uh, he had great favorites and stuff. And he, over the years, he'd, I mean, he'd read a lot of the great books that there are to read. But uh, he read much more slowly than my mother and much more slowly than other people in the family. I don't know why. But, uh-huh. yeah. I could think of, I haven't, that's not clear in my mind, so I won't say I'm sure there were, but yeah. Yeah. Do you have any thoughts, uh, opinions, critiques on either of the movie versions? A little louder. Do you have any critiques or opinions of either of the movie versions that were made of Charlotte? Well, I, I don't remember the, uh, I don't remember them very well. Uh, I thought they were okay, but, and I'd like to, I like the first, Stuart Little, the recent first, the first the Stuart Little that was from the book, not the invented stuff. I didn't see the second one. Uh, they were okay, but they're not the book. It's the same thing. And uh, a lot of kids only know them from the movies, which is inevitable. But if you go back, the thing is, if you, you go to the movies, which then make a very powerful impression on your brain and your memory. But if you go back to the books, in just a couple of pages, the books take over again, which is a sign of something. Yeah, right there. Yeah, you're on. Oh, I can't hear you. You got it. I'm sorry. When did he get the idea? Well, I don't know. As I said, he got the idea for writing Stuart Little because he made up bedtime stories for his nieces and nephews, and he made up a mouse. It was uh, an urban mouse, <laughs> a dressed-up mouse was his character. And I think he, he said once that he wanted to write a book about the farm. And I remember reading somewhere that uh, he wanted to, because young pigs are taken off to the butcher when they're quite young and turned into meat. And he wanted to have a book about a pig being saved somehow. And then on the way, he said he was walking somewhere with some, I think, either a pail of water or some, some apples somewhere, and he suddenly had the idea for something about a spider's web. And they, but he didn't write it down. I mean, it was not historic, but he remembered when he did think of some, some such device, which was the central idea, the web writing. But he, I think I'll stop. I, but I think the great thing about him is that, uh, like Charlotte, it isn't, it isn't often the true friend and the good writer comes along. And he was both. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening. For more information on 92NY and all of our programs, please visit us at 92ny.org. 
This program is copyright 2010 by the 92nd Street Y, New York.